Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, plus some other 280 hymns, has been described as a spiritual doctor whose speciality was taking specks out of sin-sick eyes. He said that the heart has eyes and they were made for seeing Christ. That, he declared, is the key to the Christian life. To quote, every step along the path of life is a battle for the Christian to keep two eyes on Christ. And thus, one of Newton's favorite texts was to be found in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, and those three words, looking unto Jesus. And he said that those words mark the beginning of the Christian life, the goal of the Christian life, and the daily privilege of the Christian life. And so this morning, I want us to look unto Jesus but with a twist, with a twist. I want us to look unto Jesus looking at us, looking unto him looking at us. That is, we who name the name of Christ, we who are his followers, we who are members of his family, we who are his saved ones, his chosen ones. As he looks at us, what features could we trace on his face? Can we see the, the lines of sadness, or can we catch a glimpse of a smile? Does he look concerned about us? Or can we discern a contentedness with us? Looking unto him, looking at us. How does he see us? Well, we, we can answer that question in a number of ways. As sovereign, he sees us as his subjects, for he is our Lord. He is the one we are to trust and obey. He is the one who rules over all and who fails not. Or we can look at him as shepherd. And he sees us as his sheep. Thus he guides us. 
He guards us. He gives to us so that our testimony is, I shall not want. So he looks at us, and he looks after us. And so we may conclude that as he looks at us, he looks at us personally. We might say pastorally. And so we can own the the promises that we find in the 121st Psalm, or we can hold on to that glorious promise of Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in us will continue it unto the day of Christ Jesus. But allow me to direct your attention to another look. The look as Savior and his sight of satisfaction with us. For yes, he looks at us personally, but he also looks at us positionally. For what is our status? What two words more than any other define the Christian, the believer, in the New Testament? Two little words. In Christ, or in Him. We are accepted in Him. We are complete in Him. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Him. A Christian is a person, you see, who not only believes in Christ, but belongs to Christ, is united to Christ, is joined to Christ, the Christian is one who is in Christ. And so, looking unto Jesus, looking at us, what do we discover? I'm going to the 45th Psalm. If you have your Bibles there, turn with me. To the 45th Psalm. This Psalm is a beautiful poem prepared on the occasion of a royal wedding. It's a marriage Psalm, it's a messianic Psalm. The author celebrates the noble qualities of the groom from verses 2 through to verse 9. Especially, The words of verses 3 and 4. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Of these words, Alexander McLaren wisely wrote, A greater than Solomon is here. And so to the writer to the Hebrews, for he quotes verses 6 and 7 in the first chapter of that epistle, and with reference to our Lord Jesus Christ. So that the groom being spoken of here, the picture being presented in the psalm, the groom is our Lord Christ. 
But then in verses 10 through 15, our attention in the psalm is turned to the bride and her beauty. My quote from parts of the psalm, Glorious is the princess, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king. With joy and with gladness they are led along. The king desires her beauty. Who is this bride? Well, our Bible reading in Ephesians 5 answered the question. This bride is Christ's church, his people. We who by grace and the power of the gospel and the ministry of God's Spirit have been called to believe, to turn to him and to trust in Christ alone for his salvation. In the words of the 11th Psalm of that verse, Since he is now your Lord, we bow to him, forsaking all others. So given this picture, this picture of a groom, this picture of a bride, what do we see when we see our Lord looking at us? What is the groom see in his bride. The first thing I'd put to you is this. He looks at us and he delights in his purchase. He delights in his purchase of us. Have you ever bought anything and when you got it home it didn't work the way you were expecting it to work. It didn't fulfill all the advertising promises that you had seen and read of. You know, maybe you've had the sad experience of buying that motor car that looked so bright and so wonderful until a couple of weeks later you found out you'd bought, and what do we call it? You'd bought a lemon. You know, some years ago, I, I purchased online. I needed a, a, a new Bible. My eyesight's going as I'm getting older, and uh, I saw a Bible advertised with a large print, and so I sent away for it in the States, and uh, it came back, and uh, with great eagerness, I ripped open the package, and I looked at this large print Bible and sadly came to the conclusion that one man's large print is another man's small print. I soon realized I did not need a, a large print Bible. I needed a giant print Bible. There was something, it just didn't come to meet the expectation. But my dear brother and sister in Christ, I want you to know this. Our Lord has never had a second thought about those he purchased with his own blood. He has never regretted for a moment bringing you and bringing me into his family. We are 
the apple of his eye. That is, one who is cherished, the object of great affection. And thus the Scriptures tell us that we are his dearly loved children, a people for his own possession, chosen and precious, loved with an everlasting and unchanging love. We are his brethren. We are his bride. What truth did Isaiah proclaim in that 53rd chapter of the book that bears his name? In the 11th verse of that 53rd chapter, we are told that he shall see the anguish of his soul, and he shall be satisfied. What a wonderful word. He will be abundantly satisfied. And so what is it that abundantly satisfies the delights of the divine? And the answer, of course, is the fruit of his suffering. The offspring that is spoken of in the 10th verse. All those for whom he has shed his blood, whose sin has been paid for, all whom he has redeemed will come to him, believe in him, love follow and worship him, and he will love them constantly, continuously, powerfully, effectually. To look at that another way, the servant of Isaiah 53 will be satisfied with the spoils of his victory. And so how does the psalmist express this truth? Psalm 147 Verses 10 and 11. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. And what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, the psalmist goes on. Those who hope in his steadfast love. They are his delight. They are his joy. Those who hope in his steadfast love. So the reverence and dependence of the redeemed rejoice his heart. The work of his hands bring him satisfaction. So what do we see when we look at our Lord looking at us? Delight. He delights in his purchase. Let me quote you some words from C.H. Spurgeon. He fixes his eye on us. He delights in us. He recognizes us as the fruit of his soul travail. Let us be glad that our Lord does not fail to enjoy the results of his dread sacrifice and that he will never cease to feast his eyes upon the harvest of his death. Those eyes which once wept for us are now viewing us with pleasure. Yes, he looks upon those who are looking unto him. Our eyes meet 
What joy is this? His delight in his purchase. But then secondly, he looks at us and he sees us dressed in his perfection. Dressed in his perfection. In Psalm 45, those words, verses 13 and 14. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold, and many colored robes she has led to the king. Now, some of you will recognize and some of you will know that in ancient times there were, there were three stages, three steps to a marriage. First of all, there was the, the betrothal, a very formal act, usually arranged by the, the parents of the future bride and groom. It was a legal procedure before witnesses and confirmed by oaths. There was also a commitment on the part of the husband's family to provide a dowry. And then secondly, when the day for the wedding finally came, the friends and the attendants of the bride gathered at the bride's home where she prepared herself with her finest clothing and jewelry. And meanwhile, the groom and his attendants readied themselves and then led a grand procession through the streets to fetch the bride. And thus thirdly, the entire party would then return to the groom's home where there would be a joyous, glorious wedding feast which could last as long as, as one or two weeks. Now add to that final scene in your mind of that glorious, joyous wedding feast. Add to your mind the story told by Jesus and recorded in Matthew 22, the parable of the wedding feast, the story where the man was thrown out of the wedding feast, who was cast out. And why? He was not wearing his wedding garment. Because you see, traditionally and culturally, when the invitation pr was provided and sent out, accompanying it was the required wedding garment. It was not just enough to accept the invitation. You also had to accept the garment graciously supplied for the occasion. This man had accepted the invitation but he wouldn't wear the garment. So what does that have to do with us? Listen to the words of Count Zinzendorf as translated by John Wesley. Jesus, your blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress, midst flaming worlds in these arrayed with joy, Shall I lift up my head? Or if I may quote the words of Robert Murray McShane, When I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty, not 
my own. What are the hymn writers speaking of here? Well, at least two things. The application of Christ's blood and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. The first has reference to the words in Revelation 7, verses 13 and 14. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from whence have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, you must forgive me, I'm not about to start an eschatological debate. But simply allow me the, the, the liberty of freedom of interpreting these words as Spurgeon and others do. Applying the words to all of church history and to all the saints of God. For all of us must first go tribulation to enter the kingdom. So what characterizes the Christian is their belief in and need of the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. That we have redemption through his blood. And so it is we sing, don't we, that his blood can make the foulest clean. His, his blood avails for me. Or as we read of in the book of Hebrews, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Let us draw near. The reality and the efficacy of the blood was proclaimed surely at Passover. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. That those within the house found shelter from judgment beneath the blood of the Lamb. They were covered by and experienced the benefit of the animal's death. And so in like manner, our welcome into glory relates to the fact that we have been to Jesus for that cleansing power. And so I'd simply ask, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed? In the blood of the Lamb. Jesus looks at his own and he sees a white robe and so welcome. But then added to the application of Christ's blood for our sin, we have secondly the imputation of Christ's righteousness for our standing. Because you see, Christ not only died to pay the penalty for my sins, but he lived a perfect life of obedience and fulfilled the law for those who would put their trust in him. So that that, that perfect law-keeping, that perfect righteousness of Christ is applied to our account. He is the Lord, our righteousness. And therefore in Him we stand before God, dressed in beauty, dressed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. As someone said, Christ took our filthy rags of sin and gave us His righteous robe. 
And so we see Jesus looking at us. And what does he see? He sees us dressed in his own perfection, perfectly attired, perfectly accepted. He sees his people and he delights in his purchase. He sees his people and they're dressed in his perfection. And so thirdly, he sees us and he desires our presence. He desires our presence. Remember the stages in ancient wedding? The groom would delightfully return to his betrothed and take her home to live with him. Surely the, 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 the thought, as it were, in our Lord's mind when he spoke those gracious words of John 14. He came from his blessed throne. He prepared a place for us in his father's house at Calvary. And soon, so very soon, he is coming back so that we may be with him forever and ever. Now there may be, before that time, a personal coming where through death's door he comes to bring us home one by one. And yet even then, the psalmist tells us that it is with joy and gladness that we're led along as we enter the palace of the king. But whether it be personal or whether it be that public return, he, he is coming for his own in order, to, in order to show us and to shower us with the never-ending, never-diminishing, never-subduing splendor of His glory. As Solomon expressed it, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine, and His desire is towards me. So what is the prayer of the bride? One word. One word. Maranatha. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. And what is the prayer of the groom? John seventeen twenty four. I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given to me. His desire is to have his bride with him. Now my friends, how strong, how secure is that desire? Upon what foundation is it fastened? How sure are you, my Christian brother and sister, that your union with Christ will result in endless, joy-filled communion with Christ? 
We'll listen to these God-given words. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, 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 no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded. What's Paul persuaded about? I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul was totally, completely persuaded of that fact. And I wonder if you are too. I wonder if you hold that same conviction. Because you see, my friends, if you don't, if you have doubts, it's because you're still looking at yourself. And you're not looking unto Jesus. We turn our eyes upon him. And we see the power of his love for us. And the persistence of his love for us. And the purpose of his love for us. And the promise of his love for us. I will come again and take you to myself. That where I am you may be also. And so Augustus' top lady wrote, The work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. His promises, yea and amen, and never was forfeited yet. Things future and things that are now, not all things below or above, can make him forsake or make him his purpose forego or sever my soul from his love. Looking unto Jesus, looking at us, delighting in his purchase of us, dressed in his perfection, desiring our presence. So what can we say about these things? What response can we make? Well, let me give you three, maybe four little points and I'm done. What is our response to all this, beloved? Well, surely there's to be a humble adoration. Humble adoration. To bow before him, believing, trusting, rejoicing, expecting because any shadow of doubt is dishonor to our God. God's own character and honor demand our completion and our glorification. So we believe these glorious truths and we bow before Him, this great King of which our pastor was speaking about at the beginning of the service. 
We bow before this great King and Lord in Christ. We bow before him because he desires us. And we bow before him lost in wonder and love and praise. We see him looking at us, smiling. And what can we say but glory, glory. But then as we see that, surely there's a heartfelt motivation. Because what did Paul say to the Colossians in chapter 3? Let me summarize some of his words in the first five verses. He says, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. And therefore, in light of that, put to death what is earthly in you. And then he itemizes certain of those earthly elements. What's he teaching here? Surely it's this. True heavenly mindedness motivates godliness. That our position in Christ leads us to become more like Christ. You see, the Christian life can be summed up in this simple phrase. We are to become what we are. We are to become what we are. To quote the famous words of C.T. Studd, If Jesus Christ be God and he died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. The wonder of our standing in Christ causes us to worship and to walk as he walked. And then thirdly, surely there's an honorable recognition. And I've been quoting a few this morning, forgive me for another, but I could do no better than this from Sinclair Ferguson. He says, we need to remind ourselves frequently that we have been given a new identity. This transforms the way we think about ourselves, but also the way we think about and treat each other in the church. If we saw each other and thought they are someone in whom the Lord of glory is not ashamed to indwell, would not the logic of that not transform the way we treat one another? Since Christ has honored that brother or that sister, with what honor should I treat that brother or that sister? A heartfelt motivation an honorable recognition, a humble adoration, and thus finally, an honest examination. 
Because it all comes down to this, doesn't it? Are you looking unto Jesus? Unto Jesus alone for your soul's well-being. Looking to Jesus alone for his righteousness, which permits us, all unworthy as we are, to draw near with boldness in his name to him who is his Father and our Father and his God and our God. Who are you looking to to guide you through this world of woe and land you safe on heaven's shore? If you have put your faith in Christ, then you have been redeemed from sin and reconciled with God. And thus, as has been written, Jesus is happy with what he sees. Your salvation is his satisfaction. When he looks at you, my dear brother and sister, he is pleased with what he sees. He looks at you. He looks at me. This very moment, this point in time, he looks at we who are members of his family. He looks at us and he says, it was worth it. Calvary was worth it. It has brought you to me so that you may behold my glory. Looking unto Jesus. Looking at us. How often do we meditate upon such things? May God enrich and encourage our souls this day. Let's pray. Father, forgive us that so often we're taken up with ourselves. And we fail to stop and see the wonder of it all. The vastness of the salvation accomplished for us at Calvary. Forgive us, our Father, that we fail to see the, the riches that are ours in Christ. That you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That you really really do love us and prize us and rejoice in us and are pleased with us. The Calvary was enough. It was worth it. Oh, Father, deepen our worship of you our walk with you, our talk with each other, and our delight supremely in you for your praise and for your glory, world without end. Amen.